Hey, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. You have found us here in the middle of the Battle of the Labyrinth. So scary. So many choices. So, I, so I'm so confused. We have some special guests here to help us get through all of this mess, so stick around. Hey, 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 hey. My name is Erica. Hi, Carter. Hi. Special surprise. We have yet again two guests for you today. Just two of my absolute favorite people. Mike is back from last week. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Hey, and the thrilling, the much-anticipated return, the revival of Ola Amokabowo. I'm back. What's up, guys? Thanks for giving me a reason to actually get dressed today. Quite a bit of stuff to talk about today. We're actually, we're doing chapters 7 through 11. It's not as much as we normally do, but we've got a whole lot of stuff to get to, including a bajillion new characters and ton of themes, and obviously an extremely important Persebeth moment that I can't start to talk about now, otherwise I'll combust into flames. So Mike, would you <laughs> like to update us? I know you have a little story you want to share from last week. Yeah, so I was thinking recently that, you know, most people look into their name and like what the name means. And I always knew that my first name, you know, my full name is Michael. Um, I always knew the meaning of that. But my middle name, Dennis, I didn't know what that meant, really. I knew why I was named Dennis after my grandfather. But I looked into Dennis and it turns out that the origin of the name is derivative of Dionysus. And therefore, all of my comments regarding Dionysus last episode, it all it's all makes sense now. Mm. I can't help but sympathize with the character. <laughs> I would cast you as Dionysus. Oh, I would love, love, love to play Dionysus <laughs> in the reboot of the Percy Jackson films directed by Becky Portman. Oh, but you what? shouldn't be in the second one because the Sea of Monsters Dionysus is the worst character to exist. Which brings me to Ola. <laughs> My question for you is, do you have anything you would like to update us on? We haven't seen you for like a book and a half, if not two whole two whole books. So yeah, I guess I really feel connected to the Sea of Monsters because I love how it approaches like a potential neurodivergent character. So I hold that one dearly. I also read them out of order. So like that was the first one I read and the first way I was exposed, as I previously said. But I actually read The Battle of the Labyrinth when I had really bad tonsillitis and I was really feverish and ill. And I've told you this already. I think this book is so confusing. I'm like, <laughs> I don't get it at all. Like I felt so dumb rereading it because I was like, there's no way this happened the first time I read it. And a small aside, I ended up realizing that I still need to get my tonsils out as an almost 22-year-old adult because you know how when you're a little kid, they shrink proportionally as you grow up. So they go from kid-sized tonsils to adult-sized tonsils. Mine never shrunk. So I still get tonsillitis like three times a year. And I actually read it again back in June when I did the reread for your podcast and I had tonsillitis. Oh no. Battle of the Lab is not good for you. This is really circular. Very circular. It's an excellent story though. I was going to mention also like I also find this book to be like supremely confusing and I never knew if it was just because after you're done with the Titan's Curse you're like oh it's the home stretch like I'm ready to get to the last Olympian and so I'd rush through it or if it's because it's genuinely confusing uh, and obviously like maybe that's on purpose from Rick because the, the maze is confusing or whatever exactly. but I always am like where 
where are we? I forget when we're underground and when we're not underground. And so I was surprised. I actually put a poll on our Instagram survey today. It was only eight hours ago. Titan's Cursor, Battle of the Labyrinth for your favorite book. And it's actually 64% said Battle of the Labyrinth. And this was from, from a good like 100 votes. So I'm actually surprised. I feel a little betrayed, honestly. <laughs> I feel a little bit like maybe we didn't know our listenership when we were going through the Titans curse because we were like, this is the best book ever. Everyone agrees. But but that's okay. We're here now and we're we're giving the Battle of Labyrinth its due course. Yeah, we are in all likelihood going to do four whole episodes on it. So that's... But you need four whole episodes. There's so much that happens yeah. in this book and that's why it's so confusing. That being said, we're going to hop right on in to chapter seven. We last left our heroes um, after a really disappointing conversation with Hera, as you might remember, totally lost. Nice. <laughs> and after that, you know, we're just strolling on through. It doesn't feel like we've gone that far, but then we pop out where, but at Alcatraz in San Francisco, all the way on the other coast of the country. That seems impossible, but but magic. Yeah, we're back at the American landmarks. We're probably going to terrorize some tourists. This, well, the first time I read this book, I thought about Alcaraz very differently. And I just want to make sure that we are not perpetuating the injustices of the way that U.S. history is taught and corrected over time. So Al let's hold space for it. Alcatraz, as, as you might know, was like for a large period of time and most famously probably um, a prison uh, at the federal level where people like Al Capone were held. But you may not know, hopefully you do know, but maybe not. I didn't know this the first time I read these books, that Alcatraz was also like a very important site for the revival of the American Indian movement, particularly an American Indian movement that was united across different tribes. Alcatraz was occupied by an organization called the United Indians of All Tribes, for almost two years from 1969 to 1971. And this is really impressive considering that it was federal land and really impressive feat that really revitalized this movement and also like brought about changes in the way that US was handling its native policy, particularly given that at the time that they began the occupation, the US still had what was called the Indian termination policy, which is as bad as it sounds and does involve forcible relocation of children away from their families. So that's just a lovely little side about Alcatraz. We love radical history. Thank you for that, Carter. I didn't know any of that. Thank you for telling me that. Again, underlining uh, the, the fact that the overall goal of the characters in this book is uh, an ill-fated one to save Western civilization. There's no saving that. Going to all of the, the American landmarks is on one hand cute and on the other hand, it's showing you like, is this what we're saving? Is this really worth saving all of this stuff that we supposedly made that are hallmarks of our culture that have histories such as such as this? Anyway, thank you for that, Carter. <laughs> as we pop into Alcatraz, we come across a new terrifying monster, um, she-dragon, war goddess, <laughs> bossy woman named Tombe. <laughs> Annabeth summarizes it pretty well, but she was like the original jailer of the Cyclops and the hundred-handed ones, and eventually was like slain by Zeus with a lightning bolt in most stories, because I think it was Gaia who told Zeus that if he could free um, the creatures that were present by Kampe, then he would win the war against the Titans. So Kampe's a bad guy, literally terrifying, <laughs> and of course a woman. Shout out to that. <laughs> she is um, sort of terrorizing who we get, this character who we get to know, whose name is Briaries. He is a hundred-handed yeah. one. Hecatonker is. Hecatonkeres, who were the original children of Gaia and Uranus. Yes. The Hecatonkeres are sort of, we think of them as siblings of the Cyclopses. They were both, um, you know, Gaia and Uranus's original children 
who were like very talented, but considered to be ugly. So when Gaia, you know, assisted Kronos in overthrowing Uranus and establishing a new world order with himself at the top, he made the fateful mistake of throwing them all into Tartarus, imprisoned by Kambe. This is all just to set up basically that the Hecatonchores and the Cyclopses are considered mm. to be brethren. And that's very right. important for what happens when Tyson figures out what's going on. Yeah, so they see that the person who Kampe is terrorizing in a jail cell and, and being like, you have to come work for Cronus. And they're like, no, I can't, is Briaries. Don't meet your heroes. <laughs> Tyson is like so excited to meet Briaries. He's like, you are the legend among the Cyclops. And, and like, I've never met a real hundred handed one before. Can I have your autograph? Do you have a hundred pens? One of my favorite lines in the entire book series. Rick's comedy is just like <laughs> blossoming in this book. But basically, Briaries has PTSD. He's immortal and he's been jailed mm -hmm. for the entire, almost the entirety of his immortality. And later we find out why he is alone here. But Tyson wants him to get out and like grow to his, his real hundred foot tall height and, and save them and like get them out of Alcatraz and come join them and fight for the good side. And Briaries is like, I literally can't do that for you. Like, please leave me alone. Now, may I add that um, Tyson, when describing the hundred-handed ones, he says that they can break mountains. And I took some real issue with this as a geologist. Because I'll tell you what, the only thing that's really out there breaking mountains are the forces of wind and rain, baby. God almighty. And they're working away. <laughs> glaciers. Definitely glaciers. Do glaciers still exist? Yeah, there's a few. Uh, not to the extent... For now. Uh, yeah, there, well, not a ton. There's waning glaciers in Alaska, and then, of course, the Greenland ice sheet uh, is still there now. But actually, in recent geologic news, a uh, study from Ohio State last week <laughs> said that it may already be too late, even with aggressive action, reversal technology, and aggressive action to prevent the total melting of the Greenland ice sheet. Yeah, if you are listening to this and you haven't heard this yet, I don't know what you're going to do with this information. I know a lot of you are young. And let me just tell you, the geosciences is going to give these you. kids nightmares. I'm not giving them <laughs> nightmares. I'm trying to tell them that this is a field that needs young, bright minds that are reading the Percy Jackson series. I'm here to recruit <laughs> you to be a geologist. <laughs> you sound like the army recruiters that go to poor high schools. No, but this is good. We this like geology and imperialism. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Save the glaciers. <laughs> the ones that can still be saved. <laughs> On the subject of rocks, we play a rousing game of a uh, rock, paper, scissor. That was a good, I approved of that use of rock. Oh my God. <laughs> Obviously, like they're trying to recruit Briaries. This is insane that we just met him. So Percy's like, you're going to get your act mm -hmm. together and you're going to come with us. He says, no. Percy's like, I have an idea. I challenge you to a game of rock, paper, scissors. If I win, you come with us. And Briaries is like, oh, mm -hmm. you stupid human. Like, I always win. Ooh, woo. And then they do rock, paper, scissors. Percy does rock, paper, scissors, gun. I think that was just to remind you that you're in America. Yeah, this <laughs> has a lot of, like, weird militarism and the fact that they're trying to recruit all these, like, poor, broken people. Like, basically refugees. Into the army. Into the army. Like, yes. Percy's low-key, like, one of those kids that would have joined the ROTC when you yeah. think about it. There's a line a little bit later that says that Luke's been buying Half-Bloods. Literally. Like, purchasing <laughs> them to join his army, which is just, like, that's an... I, I was kind of struck by that. Mm -hmm. I was like, uh-oh, that's a new... 
that's a new low for him. Like we can't, you can't really come back from that one buying people. Uh Oh, I stand by that. He's one of the worst characters. I stand by it. I forgot he did that. <laughs> but the, other than other than the gun thing being very cringy, of course, it is something that Percy's like, yeah, I picked that one up from Paul Blofus. And I was like, oh, a fatherly oh, figure cute. for Percy. Oh, Percy gets a dad. Finally. Yes, finally. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, they barely escape Compe. Um, Briaries has to come with them. They burst outside of Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. Here's where we get the terrorizing the tourists part, of course. <laughs> Tyson is like, you guys just run back into the maze. Like, I'll hold off Compe because I'm immune to poison. Um, yet again, this is like the third. Well, I want to say like the third time that Tyson is sacrificing his life for everybody yep. else. And they're like, OK, fine. And so they get into the lab. Tyson, of course, makes it through in the last second because it's too early in the book for like a let's split up gang moment. It's coming later. At this point, basically, we're, we're hidden back in the labyrinth. Compe is like shaking literally the entire thing, but she can't get in. We're safe for now. And we're dealing with the fallout of this, which is that even after all of this effort, this exciting adventure, Briaries is still not down. Briaries is Mm-mm. still struggling, still small, still afraid. <laughs> and like even after all this effort refuses to, to go with them or help them in any way. I like wrote a note, basically, d- just like, a thesis for the book, I guess you could say, based off of this mm-hmm. and other interactions, which is that, like, most of the books are, like do involve growth, obviously, because that is the engine of an interesting narrative. But, like, this book, I would say more is about disillusionment of growing up and, like, the disappointment of the hollowness of institutions and adults that you look up to. Because ultimately, as is the as is true for all, all, all things that vary over time and all intergenerational practices, there comes a point where you have to step up because it turns out that the people before you are burnt out and hollow. Um, maybe that's just where I'm at this point in my life, but, um, I, I, I was very frustrated by this meeting with Briaries, but also like very, very understanding. Yeah. I took it also, I took it more of, of, on the root of like specifically with the immortality that is going to become also an important topic for Percy in The Last mm-hmm. Olympian, that throughout this book, he is growing up and seeing the fact, kind of like what you said, that, that something like immortality, something that a he- normal hero would aspire to is actually not all that. It's not something that comes without a price. We find out that Briaries is the only hundred-handed one left because his brothers all faded away because people ceased mm-hmm. to believe in them. So there is a sort of very, very sad ending to immortality. Same thing happened with like Helios. Yeah, like w- w- with that, we, we also get this like very short aside from Annabeth basically just confirming like the mechanics of how immortality is is limited before Briaries basically just like abandons them in the labyrinth, just goes yeah. off. He hobbles off in his diaper. Percy's like, oh shit, maybe I was a little harsh because (laughs) he's been living alone after he watched all of his brothers fade after losing a will to live. Yeah, Percy at the end says, um, I think he delivers like a really just hard, hard one-liner where he says something like, maybe it's not that people stop believing in you, maybe it's that you stop believing in yourself. And he had him, he made him ashamed. Like, how do you make a multi-thousand-year-old monster that broke mountains to like shreds ashamed of himself yeah that's so cruel i like the attempt from percy to like be a real leader here and like do his best to rally his team but it's a little sad and then we're alone for our our nice like mid-book check-in fireside chat moment as they set up (laughs) camp percy checks in with tyson who is like mad disillusioned from this encounter with Mm -hmm. his hero but he's like ah what i'm just i'm going to bed 
then Percy goes and sits down next to Annabeth. This line gets its own paragraph break, which I'm obsessed with. He goes, I sat down next to her. Next paragraph. Um, and Annabeth starts opening up to Percy. Okay, don't you think it was kind of a moment? Yes, though? yes. Okay. The paragraph break does set it off. It lets us know yes. how he's processing it. He, he was like, I sat down next to her. Seven seconds of silence in my brain as I think about what I'm going to say. And then they start talking a little bit. And Annabeth, you know, is technically leading this quest even though, especially in this middle of the book, we kind of see Percy really taking on the hero role and being like the leader in, in different ways. They're very much a team. And we see Annabeth being vulnerable with Percy in a way that she is not vulnerable with, with anyone else, really. She, she's like, I wish this quest was logical. I, I literally, I was kidding myself to think that I could lead this. I never could have done this is on page 126. And Percy is like, hey, you're like, you're really smart. Like, remember all of these adventures that we've had together from like Sea of Monsters pretty much because, you know, she was gone for all the tides curse. So he's just like, remember all these memories we shared where you were really smart? And she was like, no, you're smart too. Well, the conversation also takes a little bit of a dark turn because in the beginning they're like happy reminiscing, but then they're also like, wow, like we feel old. Like Annabeth is so tired, especially because she like, after all this is like, you know, like Percy, like, do you actually know what hero means? And then Percy's like, no. What about the last line of the prophecy? And then they're both kind of like, <laughs> Let's not talk about this right now. But they're in it together, so <laughs> yay, love. <laughs> they realize Nico's down here too. And then uh, they go to sleep. So then we get the dreams, the dreams that follow the fireside chats. So, so we, we start off with um, uh, this next installment of Daedalus' myth, which is the part that I think most people are probably most familiar with, which is the, the flying part. Daedalus, as a brilliant inventor, um, is trying to basically escape slavery from King Minos who really mad that he helped Theseus defeat the Minotaur and escape. And he does that by making the wings a set for him and his son, and they fly away, except <laughs> the wax melts when Icarus flies really high, yep. and the wings fall apart, and he dies. Yeah, Daedalus is bitter. <laughs> but I do kind of enjoy this Voldemort Harry split consciousness thing that Percy has in the dreams where like, especially starting in Titan's curse where he is himself, but he is also like seeing through the eyes of a specific hero and seeing and like feeling the emotions that that hero was feeling in that moment. And that he's like connecting with them. He is part of all like this lineage of like the greatest heroes. And he's like learning about his personal history as part of that lineage. And I thought that was just so special. They wake up, they make their way back through the labyrinth. Um, and um, basically they end up in Texas not at a famous national landmark, but at a ranch. Specifically, it's called Triple G Ranch. And it turns out that it's very famous in the mythology. Ew, um, they, they come across this son of Ares named, um, oh my God. We just looked it was Euratean. It was Euratean. 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 I was saying Euridian. Yes. I think I also said Euridian in my head, but I knew that it was wrong, but I kept doing it. Um, I honestly just mumble in my head when I get towards a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Euridian. <laughs> king. Uh, yeah, Redneck we need king. <laughs> Uridian, Redneck King, who's like, I like my boss is not gonna like it, so I'm gonna give you one chance to run away, but if not, then I guess I'll take you to see him. The boss, as it turns out, is a monster named Garion. Maybe some of you are starting to recognize this. These are two figures who are very important from uh one of Hercules' labors. I I wanna say it's the tenth labor. It's the labor where he cleans the stables. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like maybe we'll do that. Thought we were done with Sounds like movies. maybe we'll do that. <laughs> oh, well. Um, I'm so thrilled to have Ola and uh, Mike here as I feel they're both experts on on Triple G Ranch. I just feel like you're both experts on on Carrion as a character. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear your commentary going forward in this like multi-chapter adventure here at the ranch. 
But this is also a moment where I would be really confused while reading because I always I somehow saw the ranches like not being in Texas. I was like, I thought that the ranch was underground. I thought that too. I also thought that a little bit. Okay, so clearly that is like a, a discrepancy in the writing that it was not clear that yeah. they're like above ground, like back on earth. I think it only really becomes clear when they're like, I don't know, like the river for me, I was like, this is probably not underground. But then I think the only thing where they're actually explicit about is there's a sundown deadline. Right. Because I, yeah. I saw it as being like they were underground and like everything was red and there was like a red sky. Okay, that's mm. this is really interesting. Yeah, And that's the part that confused me. I thought it was like very Adobe, like like New Mexico. This is like the what is it the the Berenstein Bears thing, the Mandala effect. Yeah, <laughs> I love the Mandala effect. I could talk about it for hours. I know it's kind of creepy. <laughs> One thing that did kind of throw me off a little bit about the ranch and my ecologic knowledge is there's mention of both oak trees and cacti growing among one another, which. If you look at the range of oak trees and the range of cacti, there's not much overlap. I mean, there are oaks that grow in Texas and there are cacti that grow in Texas. But any sort of biome where you're going to find them are pretty separate. So, got to say, Rick, do a little more ecologic research next time. <laughs> yeah, Rick's job here trying to be a, an ecologist with his pan subplot, but he, he, does, he clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. He needs about, me Mike. to consult for him. There we go. There we go. We'll tag him in this episode. Turns out, turns out Nico is here on the ranch, um, which makes sense. We finally meeting back up with Nico. He's been traveling through the labyrinth this whole time. He got here first. And Percy is like very much shook again by seeing him in real life Mm -hmm. for the first time. Their line is that he was too young to look so angry. And you're just like, oh, another broken little boy. How can I help you? I miss Nico. Excited to have him back. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I missed him too. I was just say, in my head, the way they describe Nico, I see him as just like Pete Davidson if you removed all the tattoos and then shrunk him down to child size. That's so That's disrespectful depressing. to me personally. I see him as Timothy so Chalamet. I, I think it's just... Uh, I mean, he has the Chalamet vibes. That's on the casting No, dog. no. Obviously, Nico should not be played by Timothy because in the reboot, he's going to be 11 years old. But... Theoretically, well, we're going to do a whole fan cast. We'll, we'll let you yes. know that now. We're doing a whole fan cast episode because we've had conversations recently that clearly need to be addressed about whether or not Percy can be played by an actor of color. Shout out to the Instagram. Black Percy. We will discuss this. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, the, the ranch sucks. The animal cruelty. Everything is dirty. Um, they're, they're selling the sacred mm-hmm. animals for meat. Garion is a capitalist monster. He'll work for anyone with gold. He doesn't have a side. Classic dirty businessman. I just watched Iron Man 1 and 2, so I was like, oh, Jeff Bridges and Iron Man is how I was seeing him visually. Well, yeah, because Garion is also literally a war profiteer. He's also part yes. of the military-industrial complex. Precisely. He just does a different part of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, Quintus was here, so that's a piece of information. That's kind of curious. He, this is where he got his scorpions from, so, like, why is Quintus wheeling and dealing with these, these monsters? Yeah, this is we get a little bit of a, a, a hash out between Percy and Nico here. Percy is mm-hmm. like, you're going to kill me. You want my soul. Nico is like, bitch, your soul is not that important. You think <laughs> I would trade your soul yes. for my sister? You are scum on this earth that I step on. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I was Absolute like, holy heat. Nico. And this is where this is where we get this line about Luke buying people into his army. Yes, because Garyon, of course, is trying to sell Nico to Luke at this point, but not trying to sell Percy, Annabeth, Tyson and Grover. Because apparently someone paid for their safe passage. Fascinating. What a mystery. We'll reevaluate later. Um, 
But at this point, Percy, because, you know, of any number of reasons, because he's a compassionate person, because he feels immense, immense personal guilt um, and responsibility for Nico, even though they have safe passage, puts it on the line, risks everything, including the other quest members' lives to make a deal with Garion for Nico's safety. Specifically, he is going to repeat Hercules's, I want to say 10th labor. I need to stop referencing the number. He's going to repeat Hercules' <laughs> labor to clean the stables. Yeah, if he can accomplish it by sundown, then allegedly everyone gets to go free. If not, then they're all being sold in the Titan army. So right. that's Yeah, fun. I think it's a big moment for Percy. Again, stepping up here, bringing us into the legendary chapter. I feel like this chapter is literally so iconic. I scoop poop. So iconic. Legendary. <laughs> I've been reading the graphic novel of this book in addition to the regular book at the same time, which is really fun. But th it's funny, the, the, the graphic novel totally skips this entire chapter and just has a picture of him in the dirty stables. And he's like, five minutes and 50 geysers later, Percy finally proves he actually is the son of the sea god. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to steal that summary. We'll, we'll go into a little bit more detail. But the way that Hercules did it is that he flooded a nearby river Mm -hmm. with the poop and Percy's like oh, I don't want to do that and he goes to talk to the Nereid of that river very glad he did not do that I know it's literally yes. so cruel all right this is page 150 I know who you are she said and I know what you want the answer is no I'm not gonna have my river used again to clean that filthy stable but oh save it sea boy you ocean god types always think you're so much more important than some little river don't you well, let me tell you, this naiad is not going to be pushed around just because your daddy is Poseidon. This is freshwater territory, mister. The last guy who asked me this favor, oh, he was way better looking than you, by the way. He convinced me. And that was the worst mistake I've ever made. Do you have any idea what all that horse manure does to my ecosystem? Do I look like a sewage treatment plant to you? My fish will die. I'll never get the muck out of my plants. I'll be sick for years. No, thank you. The way she talked reminded me of my mortal friend, Rachel Elizabeth Dare. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like she was punching me with words. I couldn't blame the naiad. Now that I thought about it, I'd be pretty mad if someone dumped four million pounds of manure in my home. But still, my friends are in danger, I told her. Well, that's too bad, but it's not my problem. I'm not going to ruin my river. She looked like she was ready for a fight. Her fists were bald, but I thought I heard a little quiver in her voice. Suddenly I realized that despite her angry attitude, she was afraid of me. She probably thought I was going to fight her for control of the river and she was worried she would lose. The thought made me sad. I felt like a bully, a son of Poseidon throwing his weight around. I sat down on a tree stump. Okay, you win. The Naiad looks surprised. Really? I'm not going to fight you. It's your river. And she proceeds to give him the little the little tidbit of information yes. that he needs, which is that the sea is always inside of him. And so then he goes back to the stables. He throws the little like fossilized shells on into the stables because, of course, yes. land used to be underwater. And he cleans everything up that way with that familiar tugging sensation behind his gut. It almost gets away from him. And then he reels it in until everything is sparkling brand new. Yes. So the first time I read through it, I was like, this is a little bit like deus ex machina, like, okay, the sea is always inside you. But at the same time, it's kind of badass. So I wasn't sure. This was a turning point for me in the book, though. Like, I was so sad when they retold the tale of Icarus. That's my least favorite, like, fable or, like, story of all time. Mm -hmm. It makes me so sad. And when he, like, when he started controlling the water, it just, like, brought me back to, I hate to beat a dead horse, but Sea of Monster Percy. <laughs> He's so, like, low-key, like, so strong, so good in that one. The Titan's Curse is really sad, in my opinion. So, like, when I do my rereads, I kind of like to breeze through it. But, like, this was the turning point when I was like, okay, everything might be okay. We're back in this the game. Isn't, like, a futile battle. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Like, I was motivated again. Yeah, like, it's not, he's suddenly, he's not just some mm -hmm. kid. We're like, oh, no, he, like, the graphic novel says, yes. like, he finally proves, like, he is the son of the sea god here. 
he is the son of the sea god. Yeah. And unfortunately, like when he has his power up, like the power up is preceded by by the conversation that we just read. That is sort of like in in my I guess understanding of his trajectory, this is sort of his great power, great responsibility conversation. Where this is the first time he's really reckoning with the idea that like he should not always use his abilities to their maximum in order to achieve his goals for mm. the nature or for, for like even if it means like taking some more risks about saving his friends or, or completing the quest or whatever it is because of how powerful he is. He has these abilities that can sometimes almost get away from him. It's important for him to like rein it in and be more cognizant about the importance of yielding, mm-hmm. which for these this book series becomes very important mm-hmm. and also is a lesson that we should all take with us about the nature of military and imperialism and how might does not make right. Um, but th- th- that's all just to say that like... The, the power increase comes with like an increase as well in like responsibility and accountability to other people who are also mm. like potentially victims, stakeholders in all of his actions now. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Breezing through, the, Percy comes back. Garyon is like, you didn't make me swear on the river stick, so our deal is invalid. Irritating. <laughs> they, they're doomed. They have a fight. Percy prays to Artemis and Apollo, supposedly receives their blessing at the last second, shoots an arrow straight through all three of his hearts. Yes. Because Garion, of course, can only die if all three of his hearts get shot through at once. If not, right. he just regenerates. But he's dead now. Right. And um, you're Sharon, right? Um, <laughs> we find out that he is immortal <laughs> because he chose immortality when Ares offered it. And he also pops in here to say, it was the worst mistake I ever made. So this is a second vote in the in just like two chapters, three chapters in a row of immortality. Bad. Do not choose mm-hmm. it. Not the end all yes. be all. Just so we're keeping track, the last immortal person we met was basically a prisoner for almost all of his existence, Briaries. The next person we met has basically been a slave for all of his existence. You're ready. Prisoner with a job. Yes. And the next immortal person we're going to meet, as it turns out, is also a prisoner for almost all of their immortal existence. So that's fine. We'll keep that in mind. Oh, shit. Okay. Cool. Pushing on. So Nico is refusing to go with them. He he hates Percy, um, but he needs a soul for a soul. Percy is like, you know what? I have an idea. Let's contact Bianca because I know that's what you've been trying to do. I have a feeling she'll answer me this time. Oh, boy, does that rub Nico the wrong way. <laughs> but they get everything together under the light of the full moon. Your your is there as well. Um, <laughs> and they sacrifice all of the, the food. Basically, the ghost comes to drink accidentally. Ah, it's Minos. It's King Minos. Oh, no. Confirmed King Minos is the ghost. This creep. I literally, he's freak. so scary. Such a freak. Evil tyrant. Criminal. Terrible. <laughs> Lock him up. Abolish the prison system, but Minos deserves Lock him it. Up. Yeah. Minos shows up to reveal to us a few important evil things that he's done. Well, number one, he tells us that Daedalus murdered someone, which maybe you remember this from the myths. I didn't actually know this part of the myths, so this was news it's to me. Up. But yeah. also reveals that he's the one who drove Chris Rodriguez, for lack of a better term, insane, because he is in his own words, the owner of the maze. So he, he you know, he basically, he's territorial over it, and he see, thinks that it's his right to to dictate who passes through and to mete out punishments upon people he does not like. That's not great. We don't love that. But he steps aside, and Nico finishes the thing, uh, and, and Bianca does show up. Self-actualized queen. Self-actualized oh, queen. She's so calm. Wait, can we take a second to talk about her outfit? Yes, please, Ola. She gives me strong Allison Stoner vibes. Like Allison Stoner that used to break oh dance God. on Disney oh Channel. Oh my God. Think about it. The sideways cap. 
the sparkly jacket and maybe some cargo capris. Huge Allison Stoner That's thing. so accurate. And I feel both disrespected by that, but also like that's so correct. No, are you kidding me? Allison Stoner would totally... Have you seen her Instagram recently? She pops off. Mm. She's like amazing. Okay. Isn't she out now as queer or like bisexual? Yeah. Yes. Oh, a win her. for us. She's amazing. Anyway, I feel Good like she would her. sign on to do this project, especially like if she has, still has a positive relationship with Disney. I don't know. But thank you for that, Ola. I'm adding that to the fan cast. I will say, when I was a little kid and I read this, I had a crush on Bianca. Okay, same. <gasps> I had a crush on all the hunters of Artemis. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> cool. Um, Bianca shows up. And she's like, don't bring me back to life. I'm, don't bring I'm me back good. to life. I'm a piece. Let go of your grudges because that's their fatal flaw as children of Hades. Very important. I can't stay for long because Kronos will find out mm-hmm. and then disappears. But also, like, she has friends with Percy. Like, Nico has to watch her basically talk to Percy and be like, hey, we're cool. And she delivers yeah. this, like, last line about how, like, Nico isn't actually mad at Percy. He's mad at her and her choices. <gasps> Gasp. That's a lot. So emotionally mature. We, we all go to sleep. Percy, Percy has another dream of uh, Luke on Mount Ham having a conversation about the quote-unquote special part he has to play in Kronos' um, you know, resurrection. What mm-hmm. is that special part? Ah, sounds creepy. Yikes. But um, we switch, because we have a lot of two-part dreams in this book, um, and we go and see Daedalus with, with someone new, with a new young child, his nephew, who a little bit reminds him of Icarus and lost his feeling there, but also is like maybe smarter than him, and that doesn't sit so well with him. This nephew has maybe figured out a way to cheat death using machines and technology. So that's something that we're going to keep an eye out for. But Perdix doesn't do it because Daedalus basically kills him. Daedalus basically just watches as he like falls off of a giant tower to his death. Yeah. So that's not a great look for him. I love how we see the god Janus flicker for a second here. Yes. Like, oh, these are the choices we're talking about. Like the choice yes. of whether or not you're going to murder your nephew. That's the god that you're the choice of. It's an important choice. And <laughs> Athena is like, I'm going to punish you. That nephew yes. also had my blessing mm-hmm. and you've killed him. So now I'm out to get you. Athena is really ruthless to be clear. What Athena does is she like brands him the way that people brand cattle. Like she leaves, she burns a mark into his skin. That's really intense. Hmm. Where have we seen weird burn marks recently? <laughs> Racking my brain. Gasp. <laughs> we'll figure it out. And then Percy bah, wakes up <laughs> to my favorite moment in every book, Grover is like, Percy, it's been seven days since we left. We thought it was less than that. And in this case, that means that Grover has expired a searcher's license and he is officially an outcast with all standards forever. So that's that's bleak. But um, that's where we are. Yep. Um, Nico decides to stay at the ranch and the team decides to head to Festus's forges because that's what Hera told them to do. Yes. With help from Eurytian. Oh my god, that's probably it. <laughs> anyway, he, the, the, the son of Ares, who now runs Triple G Ranch, um, it, it turns out is buds with Hephaestus and has like a special spider robot that's going to show them the way, so they just have to follow it through the labyrinth. This part of the quest seems like it's maybe on the way out because Hephaestus might know the way to Daedalus. So they're yeah. off, and on their way through the labyrinth, who do they run into but the Sphinx? This is this is like a cute but kind of like dumb, kind of tangential um encounter for them. Yeah, it doesn't feel on with the with the themes we're discovering in yes, this book. Way lower but... stakes than everything else we've seen. Oh, okay. Can we also point out the fact that Yoribitabba <laughs> kinda has a crush on Annabeth? Yes. I'm sorry, that's sure in does. my notes. Is that how creepy, creepy that is? <laughs> like she's about to be fifteen. It's a little sus how excited he is to give her the necklace. He's blushing. Mm-hmm. He's a grown man. Or 
as grown as you can be in this immortal series and that just made me really uncomfortable and I just wanted to make a note of that. Speaking of crushes as we're departing, Nico has a little, Nico has a little moment that I don't think we need to unpack, but like there was a moment oh. that I noted rereading it, but we don't need to talk about it because <laughs> Wait, that's so exciting. It is really exciting. Okay. But anyway, we're the Sphinx. The Sphinx, as it turns out, our fun modern twist on the Sphinx is that instead of actually giving riddles that require people to think and come up with fun tricks around language and puzzles, the Sphinx gives people a multiple choice, 20 question standardized test to basically recall different pieces of trivia. <laughs> that literally is a Scantron test as well. Like she has the Scantron machine and the forms with her. I just love to see Rick consistently shitting on like our education system. Annabeth is a person who steps up to take this for them because of course she is. We all know her. But I run five questions and she basically stops and she just says like, this These aren't. This is not what I signed up to do. I am a child of Athena and this is an insult to my intelligence. I won't answer these yes. questions. Which like, I, I have a lot of, like the first time I read that, I was like, you know, go off. Like that's, that's queen shit right there. But when I read back through this, like it's, first of all, like this entire, uh, you know, it's a little bit hollow. Like we've like, you know, standardized tests are bad. I think it's like a pretty common and hollow critique of the education system. But also, like, the thing that Annabeth says still, like, fundamentally buys into meritocracy and, like, rubs me a little bit the wrong way. It's still about her being, like, I am still special. I'm just not special in this way. Or, like, this is not the right way to determine that I am special, which I don't love. Anyway, Annabeth insights, like, a little skirmish that they get into where instead of just successfully filling out the Scantron, they, like, run away from the Sphinx, break her Scantron machine, and are on their way to see a face test. Wow. That brings us to Mike and Ola. I want your <laughs> opinions here so badly. We get Hephaestus here. He He's like so approachable. He's a god, Daddy. but he's just like talking to them. Okay, so my opinion is that Hephaestus is one of the only black gods. I know that's <laughs> controversial, but I think that if any of the gods were to be black in the Percy Jackson universe, Hephaestus would be our black king. Mm. He reminds me of an mm -hmm. uncle. He probably has those sandals that you see your uncle on at the grill on a barbecue. Like he, he reminds me of a mixture of my uncle Mark and uncle Lake, two large and in charge black kings. <laughs> and I just feel like he fell in love. Oh wait, I'm not going to get into this, but I feel like he was plagued by snow bunnies. Aphrodite's a snow bunny. <laughs> set him up for failure like the type of person to date a black guy to make their dad like angry like that strong aphrodite vibes that's how i always viewed it and i just think that Hephaestus oh deserved better and like he obviously gets cheated on when aphrodite realizes that aries the jock boyfriend that she actually wanted when she grows out of her rebellious i'm dating black athletes phase and i think that our king deserves someone that would love and appreciate him for everything he had to offer oh my god that's just my opinion that's so on point i'm trying to go to uh <laughs> the cookout at hephaestus's uh oh you know it's gonna be good there's gonna be so many veggie options it's gonna be so inclusive the brats are gonna be a standout he's gonna boil them in beer like <laughs> such a great guy i will break vegetarianism for whatever we like had this conversation in the in the fan cast um google doc that we've been making this whole time and one of the things that we say is zeus definitely has to be white but like some of the gods based on the way that like percy jackson series works probably should not be be, being yeah. like kind of deliberate about which ones are not because of the way that they're presented in the series. I just wanted to throw that yeah. out there. I, I strongly agree with this characterization. Beckendorf's the Hephaestus kid, right? Yes, he also is. that. 
And Beckendorf is our only black character. Right. Another point. Except for Kelly the Impulsive. <laughs> also, yeah, it would be good to see Hephaestus as a black god and then Charles Beckendorf to be cast as like a black actor who's not like a biracial, light-skinned black actor. No, mm-hmm. we should get the guy from Outer Banks, JD. He would be so... I'm so embarrassed that I submitted <laughs> that I love Outer Banks. <laughs> it was like really good. I just graduated from college. I had nothing going on. <laughs> My mom was really into that show. The tracks. Oh, I can't wait to talk to her about it. I love Kitty. <laughs> so that's not on Hephaestus. We met that's him. That's not on Hephaestus. Yeah, he, he is described as being really ugly and misshapen, which, you know, would require um, discussion if he were cast as an actor of color. Um, but that that is typically how Hephaestus is, because, of course, he was thrown off the mountaintop by Hera. Zeus in some myths, but Hera in this specific retelling. He's super, for the record, he's also kind of disillusioned, but he yes. also is like... He doesn't, I mean, he, his whole thing is like, he doesn't trust people. He trusts his machines. He says like, don't waste your time looking for Daedalus. He's mm-hmm. changed and stop hoping that Briaries is going to change because yeah. I agree with Briaries. Like humans suck. Human life is not more valuable than machine life, which is again, I think plays into this like immortality conversation that we're having about like, is human life mm-hmm. really valuable? And like, what does it mean to be a human? But they they argue, they argue, they chat. Confesses again, like he was like, ah, I guess I won't smash you to a pulp. Um, and he, he, he basically says that he will, even though he doesn't really believe in what's going on, he's just mm-hmm. a nice guy. So he's going to get them to Daedalus if they do him a favor, which is like comparatively to a lot of things that they have yes. to do. Loki kind of simple. Yes. He's not asking them to like wage war no. at his forge. He's just asking them to go to the forge, which is under Mount St. Helen, translated from Mount Etna, where Typhon is trapped and see what's going on. He just wants to, them to do a reconnaissance mission. And so they're off yes. to this little mini quest. Yeah, as they're on their way there, um, they like are at a fork in the labyrinth and um, Grover and Tyson both smell something and they're pretty sure it's Pan. Grover, as you know, this is kind of his whole thing. This is his life's work and they're really stressed. And Annabeth is super stressed because she's like, we shouldn't split up. Like none of us actually know how to navigate through this labyrinth. The least of all you two. And if we go off this way, like the spider knows where it's going. Like if we try to find Pan, we'll probably just all die. And we definitely shouldn't split up. But Percy's like, no, we have to. Like, Grover, this is kind of your whole life. You you need to do this. And Tyson's like, I'll go, I'll go with you. I'll help you. Which is a cute moment for them because they've they've been having some issues up until this point. Kind of ish. I feel like that was a little force in the writing, but anyway. Right. <laughs> they go off together on their own side quest. Tyson says, I, I'm not like Hephaestus and I'm not like Briaries. I trust yes. my friends. Again, the good guys believe in the value of human life and friendship classic but yeah so it's finally time for the hashtag let's split up gang percy and annabeth are alone walking through the maze and <laughs> they have this conversation because back at hephaestus is hephaestus says a lot of things <laughs> he does say a lot of things he really gave so much info <laughs> he kind of just was like oh, i haven't seen a person in forever i'm just gonna like accidentally overshare <laughs> like an uncle that one woman i had the hats for back in the day happened to be uh annabeth's mom <laughs> athena and he was like too bad she's a maiden yikes percy percy is like clearly been thinking about this since that conversation percy's wondering how babies are made <laughs> that's, that's what it is percy's like annabeth how did how did uh, how how did you come to be and they have a fun little talk about how children of Athena are born into the world. This Loki definitely something Rick included because he had not clarified this earlier. And this is definitely something we've all been wondering because Athena is famously a maiden goddess who doesn't have any children in the original myths. And their answer is that 
<laughs> Children of Athena are sprung from her mind. They are the products of divine intellectual unity between her and the mortals that she favors. It is interesting that they specify yep. mortal men also, because this definitely sounds like a way that you could have Athena have a relationship with a woman and have a child. But Rick doesn't address that. He's tying up plot holes, but also Rick... It, Rick said horny book. Rick said, Rick said they're teenagers figuring it out. Literally, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I wrote that note in reference to, um, to the next thing that happens. Yes. So we get to the forge and they see that there's sea demon monsters. I'm not t- telling <laughs> seal dogs. Yeah. Seal dogs. Annabeth and Percy are like spying. Um, Annabeth is like, I'm going to put on the invisibility cap and go check it out. And mm-hmm. Percy is watching these like sea demon children, adolescents, watching like what is essentially a sex education video being like, and then you will like grow. This is like what a grow out of your body and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, Jesus, we're really, we're really in the thick of the, <laughs> of the hormones in this book. Like this is really just sets us in, in the time period. Uh, yeah. And uh, things kind of quickly go awry. Um, Percy, Percy's found out he kills some of them, but there, there's just so many dozens and dozens of sea demons and they are not going to be able to defeat them all. But Percy like runs away, gets like a moment to like reconvene with Annabeth and basically be like, there's so many of them. But someone also has to go report back to Hephaestus if we're going to, you know, get what we wanted out of this, which is basically to report who's using the forge, right? So they, they have what they need. They just need to be able to escape and Percy basically says, like, they, they don't know you're here. You need to go report this back to him while you still can. And I'll, yeah. I have a plan. I'll take care of it. Yeah, because they're making they're making weapons. They're making Kronos' sites specifically, among yeah. other weapons. Which they made originally with mm-hmm. Poseidon's Trident. Anyway, this is on page 203. You know what you know what's about to happen. Please, <laughs> please join me in a moment of silence as we get hype for this reading. <sighs> Put your cap back on, I said. Get out. What? Annabeth shrieked. No, I am not leaving you. I've got a plan. I'll distract them. You can use the metal spider. Maybe it'll lead you back to Hephaestus. You just tell him what's going on, but you'll be killed. I'll be fine. Besides, we've got no choice. Annabeth glared at me like she was going to punch me. And then she did something that surprised me even more. She kissed me. Be careful, seaweed brain. She put on her hat and vanished. I probably would have sat there for the rest of the day staring at the lava and trying to remember what my name was, but the sea demons jarred me back to reality. Uh, oh my god. Oh, We've just, waited so long. We're here. Oh god. We're here. Finally. This, this is, this is, if you're keeping track at home, this is the first Persebeth kiss under more epic, adventurous, romantic circumstances mm. could not possibly. I, Threat of death. We love that for the in in the words of LeBron James upon winning his first NBA championship. It's about damn time. <laughs> A sports reference on this podcast. We love that. <laughs> I mean, LeBron. LeBron deserves a place. I'll give. I'll give LeBron. Great a reference. Great reference. Yes. Like, well timed. I need. I say anything. I mean, the fact that Percy is like, I could have just sat there mm. and just drew. Uh, He's so sweet. I this love is so it. important. We're going to re- need to really savor this because shit's about to fly out. Um, everything's going to be ruined. But we do have this one very important peak and pinnacle before all of that. <laughs> before stuff kind of is going to hit the fan in the freaking next episode. And I've got even more. Don't worry. I've got even more repressed internalized misogyny that we're going to have to hash out after this scene. I have so much anger left in me that, that we'll return to <laughs> next time. But savoring this beautiful moment for the two of them. It had to happen. We knew it was coming. Like we knew in our heart we could feel it was about to happen. But we can't just sit with that, of course, because the monsters. No. Okay. The monsters are literally about to get him. The telekinetic sea demons are literally like, the son of the sea god is here. I can smell the sea in his blood. And Percy is like, yep, all right. The only way I'm getting out of this mess 
is if I use my newfound powers. So as they are literally throwing clumps of lava on him also. So we get the full context of this. He's surrounded by like 30 something of these things throwing lava <laughs> at him onto his body. Anyway, it's time for reading. Page 205. They threw more lava at me, and I remember screaming. My whole body was on fire. The pain was worse than anything I'd ever felt. I was being consumed. I crumpled to the metal floor and heard the sea demon children howling in delight. Then I remembered the voice of the river Nyad at the ranch. The water is within me. I needed the sea. I felt a tugging sensation in my gut, but I had nothing around to help me. Not a faucet or a river, not even a petrified seashell this time. And besides, the last time I'd unleashed my power at the stables, there'd been that scary moment when it had always gotten away from me. I had no choice. I called to the sea. I reached inside myself and remembered the waves and the currents and the endless power of the ocean. And I let it loose in one horrible scream. Afterward, I could never describe what happened. An explosion, a tidal wave, a whirlwind of power simultaneously catching me up and blasting me downward into the lava. Fire and water collided, superheated steam, and I shot upward from the heart of the volcano in a huge explosion, just one piece of flotsam thrown free by a million pounds of pressure. The last thing I remember before losing consciousness was flying. Flying so high, Zeus would never have forgiven me, and then beginning to fall, smoke and fire and water streaming from me. I was a comet hurtling toward the earth. <laughs> Rick, Rick with this writing. Percy is is dangerously like getting into that territory of being like just way too overpowered Power. for the book. Um, like this is a moment where he creates the water out of nowhere. I mean, he says the water is within you, Percy. However, is the water not within all of us? It's a little blood bendy. I'm not gonna lie. I love the Avatar reference. I love that it always comes back to Avatar. Yeah, I'm not going to apologize for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't. I love it. (laughs) It's a little blood bendy. It's a little like lava bendy. It's a little metal bendy, but I like it. It's excellent. We do need it. Part of the joy of reading these books, like one right after another as an adult, is seeing the way that Rick grows Percy's power. Because I think that like part of what made the movie so bad is that he was so ridiculously overpowered from the first scene where you see him like... Mm -hmm do anything that like it there's no like build up there's no like oh my god like here he is there's no questioning of himself as a hero this he seems overpowered but this is the fourth out of fifth book in the series like he really hasn't done that much that would make us think that he is one of the greatest heroes of all time born to one of the most powerful gods in existence so that we finally get this here it really it sticks with us and we're Mm -hmm. like oh now 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 we're rolling and maybe we have a chance rick really doesn't give them like a chance to breathe or a chance for us to even like fully believe in percy at any moment in these books um so now that we're finally here i'm having fun yeah and to be fair i guess he like can't really control it and like does almost uh die yes yeah but that's for next episode All right. Well, that was the last of the content. So, of course, I am now going to ask Ola for your opinions, your your check-in, yearly checkup, your physical (laughs) with Persebeth and Western (laughs) civilization. I am so at the kiss. It just, I like how it's written so much because there's so much important stuff going on, but we get those like three lines where we're reminded like, ah, this still has like a little bit of romance in it. And I think it's perfect. It's so good. It's so realistic to what it would be like to be 14, kind of having a huge crush on your best friend, but also trying to save the world. I think it's so perfect. Like the juxtaposition of like those two very important things, like on one hand, 
Percy's personal happiness is so important and it's never really talked about in the book series because he's so busy being mm-hmm. a hero. But the fact that it grounds him as a young male is just incredible. And the fact that Annabeth like kisses him because she knows it might be the last time she sees him. So that also like emphasizes like the importance of what he's doing. And as far as Western civilization, like I think the sections reread are very much like rick making fun of like the shitty parts of america which is good but he also makes percy really militant in this section so it's kind of frustrating that like you see percy pulling a finger gun you see percy bullying the hell out of a man that's traumatized after being traumatized for thousands Mm -hmm. of years but then on the same hand he's making fun of like gun toting rednecks (laughs) and it's like percy's kind of like more on their side than he is on crunchy liberal side Mm. so I'm annoyed that it's all about Western civilization, but I get why it was written that way, especially because this was written in 2008 when there was a lot of hope towards what America Mm -hmm. could be. Whereas like now it's 2020 and I'm disillusioned with everything that America stands for. So this might be very pro Americana. I think this might be in like the sweet spot before the terrible economy. Right. That's, that's interesting. Thank you for putting that into like a yearly context for us. We haven't done that enough. Since, since the very first one. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. And then when we come back, I'm going to read some answers to our questions from listeners. Ooh. So we, we've been begging, begging, begging you guys to send us your opinions on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Seaweed Brain Podcast, Seaweed Brain Pod. Um, and it turns out some of you have. So <laughs> shout out to um, the, the folks who have sent us their messages for waiting this long to hear them read. But this is from Molly Tall on Twitter. I hope I said your last name right, my friend. Is Percibeth the greatest love story ever told? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. You guys have done such a wonderful job interpreting their relationship so far. Thank you. I'll just <laughs> say a couple things that deserve more attention. The best love stories are the ones where the core of their relationship is friendship. Percy and Annabeth were already best friends, partners, long before there was any romance. There's a moment in The Titan's Curse that this podcast did not address, which is a crime. After <laughs> Annabeth falls off the cliff, Percy had to be stopped from yeeting himself into the rocky <laughs> sea below, trying to get her back. And at that point, they're still just friends. He had to be physically restrained. Read that and tell me this isn't the greatest love story ever told. Shakespeare could never. <laughs> Romeo wishes he had this with Juliet. Thank you for calling us out. You're, you're so right. No, thank you. <laughs> the, she also went on to cite several more moments, which we didn't address in uh, uh, The Sea of Monsters, which we don't have time for. But but we'll, we'll circle back to them eventually, Molly. And then as far as Western civilization goes, is it worth saving? Relationship status complicated. I think Percy Jackson is like, Think critically about your society 101. The core audience is kids. They're about to go through that transition where they realize history class has been lying to them. And Rick is sending them a Poseidon-esque message. Brace yourselves. Percy, pay your child support Jackson. (laughs) Challenges the gods. He says, you've left a mess for the rest of us to clean up and we're going to hold you accountable. So I think the message here is that, like, no, Western civilization as it exists is not worth fighting for, but it's what we're stuck with. So we have to make it something worth fighting for. Thank you, Molly. That's beautiful. Okay. Thank you guys so much for sharing your thoughts. Thanks again for for having me on. It was fun to do it two weeks. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're going to see y'all back. Um, And next episode, like we said, there's a lot to get through. There's some more unpacking (laughs) that we're going to have to do. And I'm glad you're both here um, to to help us on through that. So thank you guys so much for being here. All right, bye. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.